So Father, this morning we declare that we believe. We believe in the name of Jesus. And God, we thank you for sending your one and only son to this earth, Jesus, to die on the cross for our sins. Father, um, we have gathered this morning to worship you, to set aside the things of uh, this world, the busyness, the distractions. We've gathered to direct our attention towards you and only you as our Lord and Savior. God, I pray that you would do uh, a work in our hearts this morning. Holy Spirit, uh, you are here because you are in us. I pray, Lord, that you would have free reign. Holy Spirit, I, I pray that you would convict us, that you would guide us, that you would awaken us and shape us and, and uh, Lord, bother us. It's easy for us to get comfortable. And I love that we can sing and declare what we believe. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Good morning. How's everybody this morning? Good, 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 good. Um, I thought that joke was very insensitive about the bears. You know, um, I've been really good. Uh, Lori told me a couple weeks ago, you cannot say anything about the Vikings after they missed that field goal. And uh, okay. Just as a reminder, we have books for sale at the information desk, uh, Evangelical Convictions. If you're following along, you want to uh, do a deeper read into what we've been studying, those are for sale. And also, if you haven't downloaded the Speak Truth app, I encourage you to do that. There's a, there's a track within that uh, app that you can go deeper as well into this series called We Believe. We've been looking at um, the statement of faith of the free church. Today is week three in a series called We Believe and a series based on the evangelical free church statement of faith which provides for us this, this biblical framework to cling to, to align with, to rally around. But here's the deal, without getting so sidetracked with other lesser important topics that we believe fall into a category that, that's called the significance of silence. And so far we've looked at God, and we've looked at the Bible, and now today, uh, week number three, we're gonna look at the human condition. So, you know, sometimes we like to have everything about us. So today is about you, and it's about me. It's about the human condition. Article three, this is what it says. We believe that God created Adam and Eve in his image, but they sinned when tempted by Satan. In union with Adam, human beings are sinners by nature and by choice alienated from God and under his wrath. Only through God's saving work in Jesus Christ can we be rescued, reconciled, and renewed. All right, here we go. So follow along on the paper copy, or if you have version, you can follow along that way. I'm gonna look at three main points, and the first main point is this. Our creation, and it's found in Genesis 1.26, and I wanna begin by talking about in his image, the fact that we were created in his image. Genesis 1:26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. If you need a Bible, slip a hand up. We've got ushers coming down the aisles. Um, again, if you need one at home, take that with you. 
but you can follow along this morning. The creation story builds and builds and builds. And if you haven't read it, I encourage you to do that in Genesis, starting in Genesis chapter one. But it builds and it builds and it builds. And then it reaches this, this highest point when God says, let us make mankind in our image. And that one statement answers common questions about human dignity and about the sanctity of life. And we also see here in Genesis one, a, a created order. Man was made from the dust of the ground, just like all of the other animals, although there is one exception. He was the only creation made from the dust of the ground, but in God's image. God's image is called Imago Dei. So as, an, as a mirror or a reflection, we are the image of God. And the idea of likeness is to mirror God's image. The heavens declare the glory of God, the scripture says. So how much more do we as his created image reflect his glory? In what way have we been created in the image of God? Well, there's, there's four primary ways. And the first one is that we are rational. We're not always rational. Sometimes we're really irrational. But we are rational. We're created in that way. We're able to think and we're able to seek truth. Another way is that we're moral. We're able to make moral judgments. We, we can know right from wrong or, or good from evil. We're created like him that we're social. We're able to communicate and love. We're spiritual, able to worship and pray. So we're unique as is creation in that we can think, we can feel, we can speak, we can reason, we can make decisions, moral judgments, we can love. And then on top of all those, we have these three foundational needs that we've been created with, to be loved, valued, and accepted that can only be met in him. Humans are created with unique abilities, absent in all other creatures of the earth that mirror the divine nature of God. One major takeaway, knowing we're created in the image of God is this. Any form of racism, elitism, discrimination, or oppression is not only a social issue, but it's a sin issue at its core. The more that we understand Imago Dei. If I choose to treat a fellow image bearer in fear because they're in some way different than me, I have sinned against God. We were created to image. And when we stop imaging God, we image self. When we image self, we minimize Imago Dei and we maximize self-image. Imagine if everyone lived in the freedom of Imago Dei we would see both self and others in the light of God's image. I wanna talk about verse 27, male and female. This is what it says. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. This is what's called gendered creation. So what's important about verse 27? As much as someone my age has to wrestle with the topic of gendered creation and our culture, it pales in comparison uh, to the younger generations. For this reason, I turned to Sarah Dunkel, our pastor Stephen's wife, who is our associate director of student ministries. She has done some significant reading and research in this area. While some of what I'm about to say in the next two minutes is from me, much of what I'm about to say is from her. Um, with whatever you agree with is from me, She said that was okay to say. 
So I'm going to talk about three categories. And, and I need you to really, really listen to what I say. I want to talk about creation, pre-fall, when we talk about male-female. I want to talk about the traditional view. And then I'm going to talk about today, contemporary. Creation, the pre-fall. Male and female, he created them. This is before um, the fall of man. Male and female, the way God created them and the way that they were born. The EFCA, our denomination, affirms that God created humans as male and female, as noted in Genesis 1.27. The biblical role of marriage between one man and one woman also affirms the creation of male and female. Now I want to talk about the post-fall, after the fall of Adam and Eve, but the traditional view. The word sex has traditionally been used in a biological sense in describing a created being as either male or female. So we might say, well, what sex are there? Are they male or female, right? That's familiar. But the word sex and gender have traditionally been synonymous. And both have traditionally referred to the biological way someone was created and is born either as male or female. So traditionally, we've used those words interchangeably. What sex are they or what gender are they? And we would always answer they're either male or female. In Genesis 3, as we'll see in a couple of minutes, sin entered the world and nothing was left untouched. Every aspect of creation was affected. The original design of male and female was and is good, but the world, because of sin, was and is no longer as it was created to be. People struggle with gender identity and gender dysphoria because our world is broken by sin. Romans 5.12, therefore just as sin entered the world through one man, the death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. Now, let me talk about contemporary. Let me talk about contemporary culture today. The word sex and gender are no longer one and the same. The sex of a person describes how they were born biologically as either male or female, while the word gender now refers to a socially constructed idea of women and men, such as gender roles. As much as we might want to make the two words synonymous as they were for so long, the culture is pushing back saying they are actually quite different. Our culture uses the word gender as more of a neutral or this fluid expression as opposed to gender being synonymous with the sex of a person. This allows our culture more room to wrestle with gender identity. That's, that's the world we're living in, correct? So how do we as a church, how do we as believers balance truth and grace? Well, first let's talk about truth. We don't abandon the truth of God's word. If we claim it is God-breathed and the authoritative word of God, then we must hold ever so tightly to its teaching. So in verse 27, it says, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. It is true that God created every person on purpose, not by accident, as either male or female. It is also true that we live in a gender culture that has expectations, stereotypes, and assumptions of their own. 
many of which are impacting a traditional frame of mind and a more conservative expectations when it comes to roles. It is true that our culture is presenting us with attitudes and behaviors that are in direct conflict with God's holy word. It is also true that we all struggle and we all sin. Our struggle might be pornography, our struggle might be gossip or lying or cheating, and for some it might be gender identity. None of us can cast the first stone. It is true that we all fall short of God's glory. It is true that the wage of sin is death. It is true that God desires for everyone to have relationship with him, including those who struggle with gender identity or dysphoria. Remember, it is the fall of man that led us to this place, not any one person's decision. Sin runs deep, but his grace is more. If Christ's blood cannot cover the sin of a person struggling with their gender identity, then he died for nothing. As much as we may not fully understand the struggle of gender, we also don't fully understand grace. But what we do know is that his grace is sufficient. In the end, it's about balancing both truth and love truth and grace. Ephesians 4.15 says, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. Adam and Eve were historical figures. You don't need to turn there, but Acts 17.26 says this. So this goes back to creation, and, and so some people wrestle with the, the idea or the, or the question, um, were Adam and Eve the first humans ever created. Acts 17, 26. From one, <clears throat> from one man, he made all nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. From one man, he made all nations. The one man, according to Genesis, is Adam, who then was joined with the first woman, Eve. So what else do we learn? All humans have descended from Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were created in God's image, accountable to God, responsible moral agents. Adam and Eve rebelled against God. And then we come to verse 25, it says this, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. So they're in the garden. <clears throat> We've talked about creation. Now we're gonna move into a section called our condition. And I want to talk about temptation. I want to talk about the fall. After God created the earth, he created Adam and Eve. And then their relationship with God, it was this perfect relationship. They loved him supremely. They worshiped him wholeheartedly. They served him cheerfully. The Garden of Eden was basically this, this sin-free paradise. In, in Genesis chapter 2, we begin to see the perfect life of Adam and Eve unravel before our very eyes. Let's talk about temptation. And there's three steps under temptation, and the first one's doubt. And I want to look at verses 1 through 3 of Genesis chapter 3. It says, Now the serpent 
was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. So here comes the serpent on the scene and uh, begins this process of doubt and asks this question, did God really say? And that question and the response changed the course of all mankind. It was a question of doubt. God had given one clear command to his perfect creation, Adam, who then passed on this command to Eve. It wasn't complicated at all. It was very simple. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Did you catch that? Did you catch the twist? Let me read it again. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? That was the question that was asked. It's a subtle twist. God said to Adam, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, just not this one. And the serpent asked the question, did he really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The answer to the serpent's question is no. That's not what he said. And that's easy for us to say, right? Eve, though, without hesitation, comes back at the serpent and he says, and she says in verse 2, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. So Eve sets the serpent straight by saying, no, that's not what God said. But then she does something interesting. She adds to God's directive by saying, he also said we must not even touch it or we will die. God never said that. Her addition uh, to God's command uh, starts to reveal the serpent's deception was working on her. She was becoming more desperate. She was becoming more confused. All the while, she started to second guess herself. So she embellished the command for her own convincing. So first there's doubt, and he's really good at it. And then there's the second step, and that's lies. So we're talking about temptation. Verse four and five. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. So so Satan's number one offensive play is twisted deception. His goal is to get you so confused that you won't know what is truth and what is a lie. Much of what we deal with in this life stems from being confused and believing lies about ourselves and about God. Satan knows the truth will set us free, and so what does he do? He causes doubt and deception. How alluring it must be to think that we could live independent of God and be like him. 
Just think, we could replace God. We could be our own God. In this entire account, the snake only speaks two times and his primary message is this. We will not ever be satisfied until we are our own God. That's his message. That's the irony in Satan's promise. So doubt causes us to entertain lies that say life is not good and it will not work until you become like God, AKA your own God. So doubt, lies, and then there becomes this destructive pattern in verse six. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. So in verse six, we see this progressive three-pronged descent. The craving of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the gaining of wisdom. We see it again in 1 John chapter 2, 16 and 17. It says this, For everything in the world, the cravings of the sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. So in 1 John, it reflects back to this Genesis account and affirms it. The pattern is still there. How often do we find ourselves in places of life not trusting or believing that God can satisfy us? You didn't get there on your own. You were influenced through doubt, which led to lies, leaving your flesh craving for what you don't believe that God can give you. And then our eyes begin to lust. We begin to see things. Oh, maybe that'll satisfy me. Oh, maybe that will make me happy. That will work. And when that makes me happy and satisfies me, then I'll be able to boast about life. Look at me. I'm finally satisfied, I'm finally happy. So the apple represents substitutes and the apple is everything in this life that we believe will give us what we need apart from God. It's to believe this is what I have been looking for. And when we're not satisfied in God alone, our flesh craves more. And when our flesh is craving, here's what happens. Our eyes play tricks on us. First there's the temptation and then there's the fall. I just wanna summarize Genesis 3, 6 through 24, real quickly. Adam and Eve heard God as he was walking in the garden and they hid from him. God called out to them and Adam responded by saying, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked so I hid. And God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you to not eat from? Then the man did what men sometimes do that men shouldn't always do. He opened his mouth. And he said to God, 
the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then God turned toward the woman. What have you done? And the woman with apple juice running down her chin said, don't look at me, the snake deceived me when he handed me a Granny Smith and some caramel dipping sauce, right? It was so alluring, I couldn't help myself. Then God turns his attention first to the serpent, then to the woman, and then to the man. And you can read this. And he backs up a dump truck and unloads on all three of them all of the new realities because of the fall of man. All because of their unwillingness to be satisfied in him alone. Created in God's image, our condition, we are fallen, but there's hope. And I want to leave you with hope. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the God, the Father. So, so far we've looked at the fact that we are created in God's image, Imago Dei, and that we're sinners and we're in desperate need of a savior. From the book, Evangelical Convictions, this is what it says. Jesus is the full expression of the perfection of God intended when he created man in his image. In answer to the question, what is man? The Bible directs us to Jesus. Our condition cannot be considered apart from Jesus, who is the perfect image of the invisible God. Jesus is, the, is his human nature, in his human nature is what Adam and Eve were created to be. He came to earth to undo the sin of Adam. He came to make right what had been broken. Romans 5.19 says this, for just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. So through one man, Adam, made sinners, through Jesus, made righteous. Have you ever messed something up and somebody else had to fix it? Or someone else messed up and you had to make it right? Adam, who was made in God's image, desired and longed so badly for the equality with God as something he could grab or snatch. This is Adam. He desired it so badly he could grab or snatch it. But listen to this. Jesus, on the other hand, who was equal with God, but did not see his equality as something to be used for his own gain or advantage. Crazy. Man who is not equal with God, but created in his image, wants to be God. And Jesus, who could take full advantage of his equality with God, chooses not to. That's our Savior. 
Philippians 2, 6 and 8. Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Our only hope in this life is Jesus. Period. The perfect image of God who in humility gave up his life to undo the wrong and make it right. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. We are created in God's image. We're conditioned by sin, but we're hopeful in Christ. Would you stand with me? I want to leave you with one thing, and um, I'm, I would like for us to read this together, um, and then we'll continue in worship. Um, would, you, would you just read this with me? And this is the gospel message. And maybe if you're here this morning and you have not ever responded to the gospel message, and surrendered your life to Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Maybe even just by reading this, um, this would be the day that you would do that. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God. And it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. Amen.